Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open to Mark chapter 12. We continue here looking at Mark's gospel. It's on page 848 in the Pew Bible this morning, page 848. As you find your way to Mark chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 27. Let's pray. We'll read our passage together. Father, thank you that you are a God that we can trust. You are a faithful God who is faithful to your word. You are the only true God. You are the only God. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, Lord, help us to understand that we can trust this word. We can put our faith in this word. It is firm. It is sure. And it's not something that is foreign, for Christ himself trusted your word. Lord, we're going to see that. And Lord, help us to to understand that the scriptures are given to us by you to show us salvation, to show us our need of a Savior and how you have worked all this out. Now you are bringing glory to yourself through the redemption of man. And Lord, this is a life-giving word from a life-giving God. Lord, thank you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This past week, I had the honor of going to Washington, D.C. with my dad on an honor flight. Uh, many of you knew that, and we're praying for that. Thank you very much. I had a great time, really enjoyed it, time with my dad, and to, to see the sights. Um, but as uh, I was studying this week and uh, thinking about this aspect of not knowing the Word of God and understanding what it says, and being in Washington, D.C., we were able to be at the Lincoln Memorial. Um, this quote or this meme, this funny picture, kept coming back to my mind, and it was this. You can't trust everything you read on the internet, quoted by Abraham Lincoln, right? You can't trust everything you read on the internet, spoken by Abraham Lincoln. Now, that's obviously a humorous uh, attempt to show itself. It, it's, it's ironic, right? But even throughout history, there are records of speeches or things that people have said that have grown wildly out of proportion, right? Um, they said this. Well, they didn't say that. Or a quote was attributed to someone else. Or 
Uh, they said this when really it was this person who, who said it. And, and all of a sudden, throughout the years, the trusting of a quote or what becomes changed and, and is applied to someone else. And then you ask the question, well, did they really say that? Can we trust what this uh, source says? Well, I found it on the internet. It has to be true. President Lincoln would have something different to say about that. But as we come to this passage, and as we think of trusting in what someone says and believing the source of a statement, we see here Jesus in another confrontation, this time with the Sadducees, being confronted about the trustworthiness of Scripture and what Scripture says and how it is applied. And very clearly here in this passage, we're going to see this, that Jesus affirms that the scriptures point to God being a powerful life-giving God. And that's our big idea this morning, is that Jesus affirms that the scriptures pointing to God being a powerful life-giving God. There's a series or, or, or a, um, a, a flow of thought in the world today in broader uh, and I mean broader religious thinking, that Jesus, well, he didn't really believe the Old Testament. He kind of took it and he changed it. Um, he didn't believe everything that the Old Testament contained. Um, he changed things. And what they were trying to do is to undercut the authority of Jesus and the message of Jesus by undercutting Jesus's belief in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, in the word of God in the first century. We understand that the New Testament, the majority of it, if not all of it, was not even written <laughs> by the time of Jesus. So what they had in Jesus's time was the Old Testament, the, the, the law, the prophets, and the writings, the histories. Um, sometimes it's called the law of Moses. Sometimes it's called these, these other things. But Jesus fully affirms these scriptures. And in affirming these scriptures, he points out the error of the Sadducees as well as demonstrating how God is a life-giving God. He is a God not of the dead, but of the living. Jesus affirms that the scriptures point to God being this life-giving God. Through his interactions with the Sadducees, Jesus speaks of the power of the resurrection. It will be more than just a continuation of this earthly life. The saints in eternity will enjoy bodies such as angels. It will be a transformative change. This is attested through the fact that the promises made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob are yet to be fulfilled, yet they will enjoy their fulfillment. God is the God of the living for the reason that his promises cannot be given to dead men. And this coming fulfillment demonstrates that the resurrection will be sure to happen. And all of this is through this powerful, life-giving God that is affirmed in the Scriptures. So let's look here. We're going to walk through verses 18 to 27. Another confrontation here in Mark's uh, gospel as Jesus has made his way into the temple. And now we come to this discussion with the Sadducees. So we're going to give an overview of their question and the ridiculous case study that they propose. Um, and then Jesus' response. So we're going to look firstly at their overview uh, and their question that they pose. So verse 18, And Sadducees came to him, 
Mark doesn't give any necessarily time frame here. It just seems like it's boom, 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 one after the other. The Sadducees come to Jesus. Jesus has already been confronted by the temple leaders, by the elders, by members of the Sanhedrin. He's been confronted by the Pharisees and the Herodians. And now he's confronted by the Sadducees. And this is uh, another group of religious leaders in the nation of Israel. And these were, in a sense, the religious political elite. These were the leaders who had control of the Sanhedrin, but there's something particularly different about the Sadducees uh, as opposed to everyone else. They were big fans of Rome. They weren't Herodians, but they were big fans of Rome because Rome was in power and Rome kept them in power. But secondly, they denied anything that was supernatural. So they didn't believe in the resurrection. Mark records that for us there in verse 18. The Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels or the appearing of angels. There was no supernatural, no resurrection, no life after death. They actually held to only the first five books of the Old Testament, to the books of Moses. And if it wasn't in the books of Moses, they didn't believe it. Those weren't authoritative as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. One author said this, They did not believe in the existence of the soul, life after death, resurrection, final judgment, angels, or demons. Most of the Sadducees were priests and were wealthy. They considered themselves the religious aristocrats of Judaism and tended to look down on everybody else. They were pretty uppity. They thought they knew it all. They saw past those fairy tales and those fables of angels and miracles and resurrection. And they were more educated. And uh, they were more, um, uh, I would say, not, uh, well, they just thought they were all that. <laughs> um, they were past that. They were, they were the upper echelon of the intelligence, you could say. And they looked down on everybody else. And so they come to Jesus with this question. Verse 19, they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they are asking a question about the law of Moses because they believe Moses is authoritative. And they ask him this question. If a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, the man must take the widow. This is called leveret marriage. And it was a practice whereby a man was obligated to marry a childless widow of his brother in order to preserve the name and memory of his deceased brother and to ensure the establishment of his deceased brother's property inheritance within the family line. Why was this put in place? This is found in Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 through 10. A lot of different ideas, but several ideas include that God did not want these widows to then go outside the nation of Israel and find husbands among other pagan nations. It was also to care for the widow who had no husband and no children to help her in her situation in life. So though it may be a little strange in our minds, this was actually a very common practice around the world or in the Near East in the ancient Near East. So this levirate marriage, we read of this. This is what all is all about in the book of Ruth, right? The kinsman redeemer. 
that's this played out. That uh, Ruth's husband dies and she's childless. And so the closest living male relative should marry Ruth. She meets Boaz. Um, all that goes down. There's another one. He's like, no, thank you. You can have her. And so Boaz marries Ruth. And from, from, from Ruth uh, comes Obed and Jesse, then David, then eventually Jesus. So that's an instance of this levirate marriage in the Old Testament. But negatively, in Genesis 38 with Tamar, uh, where uh, her uh, brother-in-law did not want to follow through with this and the judgment that came from that as well. So we have a good example and a bad example in the Old Testament of this law. And they are presenting this case study, and it's ridiculous. Because this woman marries a brother, no child. So then she marries another one and another one, seven times. By that seventh brother, don't you think the brother would be like, I ain't marrying her. <laughs> like, is it her cooking? What is it? I don't know. <laughs> but it's so ridiculous in its presentation that it just makes the question seem that much more ridiculous. It's a use of rhetoric that you present this ridiculous circumstance to point out how something is wrong or false. So here's a woman who's married to seven brothers. None of them have children, and then she dies. So who is she married to in eternity, in the resurrection? Now, this is an extreme example, right? Have you ever heard that when somebody's arguing or discussing a point and they always use the most extreme example? You're arguing uh, onto the extremities of the issue and not what is really there. That happens today all the time in our political and public discourse. But what's more ironic is they ask the question, in the resurrection when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For seven had her as her wife, in verse 23. So the Sadducees ask, in the resurrection, wait a minute, I thought they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't. And they're using this ridiculous story to demonstrate, to show how the resurrection just complicates things how it's so far-fetched and ridiculous that it's something that should be, be done away with. Their question is a brilliant uh, disguise designed to explode what they consider the superstition of life after death, one author says. In the minds of the Sadducees, simple wit and common sense are sufficient to reduce the idea of the resurrection to an absurdity. So they present this absurd situation to demonstrate how absurd they think the resurrection is. But they do not understand the resurrection. They do not understand what is all involved. Another author said their question is framed on the understanding and assumption that the world to come is essentially an extension of our present earthly conditions, including the merry state, although under more glorious conditions. So in their minds and the understanding of the first century teachers of the resurrection, they thought the resurrection would just be pretty much a continuation of the world as it is with maybe a little bit more glorified sense. We won't die again, maybe the absence of sin, but life will go on as usual. And that was the understanding. Now we need to stop and think, what did they know about the resurrection at this point in time? Because 1 Corinthians 15 wasn't written yet which is a wonderful, wonderful explanation by Paul of 
how things will change. They didn't have the book of Revelation of, of the thousand year reign of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. Well, what did they have? There's not a lot of clear, direct explanation in the Old Testament of what the resurrection will be like. There's hints of it. The book of Psalm, Psalms is filled with allusions of, of new life, of, of springing back up, of new growth like in spring. Perhaps the best explanation is found in Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where it talks about when, uh, when, when the angel comes back and then those who sleep will be raised up. So it's clear that there will be a resurrection, but the details are a little fuzzy. And so Jesus here corrects their thinking. He corrects their thinking and he corrects them. They ask this ludicrous question to demonstrate how the resurrection is false and to paint Jesus into a corner. But like Jesus does, he gets out of it rather quickly. So how does he do that? How does he affirm the resurrection? How does he explain how, what life is like after uh, the resurrection? And how does he demonstrate that the Sadducees are wrong? Well, first off, he points to the fact that the power of the resurrection, or the resurrection is powerful. It, it's, it's changing. It's life-changing. Jesus responds, stating that they are wrong to the Sadducees, and he does not hide his correction. He's very clear. They are wrong in their thinking. Specifically in two ways. First, the power of God, and then the testimony of Scripture. So let's look here in Jesus' response, the power of the resurrection. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus says to them, um, Do you want to know why you're wrong? Because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Jesus isn't hiding his thoughts right here. He's very, very clear. This is the reason that you are wrong. Basically, you haven't experienced God and you don't know your Bibles. You don't know your Old Testaments. And then he gives this description of the resurrection, verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor give it in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So he talks here about the resurrection. Remember, the Sadducees denied it. The Pharisees had an incomplete understanding of it. But what Jesus does here is he fleshes out of what it will be like. He says, for when they rise from the dead, they, who, who are these days? Well, these are the presumed saints, the, the believers, those who trusted in the Lord, the Old Testament saints. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So as we understand as we look at this passage and the res in the resurrection state whatever that may fully be like we know this that in eternity we will not be given in marriage and we will not marry so like the angels he'll, like he'll mention here in a little bit there are no uh, marriage relationships in eternity uh, there's no need for propagation for those are, we're all sinless and we're enjoying eternity forever. So there's no uh, given in, uh, in marriage. There's no marriage in the same sense that we have it here. But Jesus says, but they are like the angels in heaven. A couple things here to make clear. 
Marriage is an institution for this present world and not necessarily for the world to come. And the resurrection body will be something different than we have now. It will be similar, but yet different. God's power will be displayed in transferring us from mortality to immortality, from darkness to light, from death to life, from sinfulness to sinlessness. 1 Corinthians 15, I already mentioned it. It's a great chapter to read on the resurrection that Paul recounts for the believers there in Corinth of, of what the body will be like. It's like a seed planted in the ground and that springs forth with new life, untainted with sin. But they are like angels, he says. What does that mean? Well, angels do not die. They are eternal. They are without sin. We will be without sin. But what's important to understand here is that believers in the resurrection are like angels. They are not angels. This is very common, right? A loved one passes away and you miss them and now they're an angel in heaven. No, they're not. They're a, if they were a believer, they are a believer in heaven. Angels are a separate class of creation. God created angels and he created humans. As we are believers in Jesus Christ and we pass away and we enter into heaven and then into eternity in our glorified bodies, we will not be angels. We will be humans with glorified bodies. We are separate. We are distinct. So while you understand the sentiment, it's a bad theology. When we die, if we are a believer in Jesus Christ and we go to be with him in heaven until he returns, we are not angels. We are humans. Our bodies and our souls are separated. Our spirits are with Christ. And when he comes back, we will be resurrected to our glorified bodies and we will be humans in a glorified sense for all of eternity. So Jesus is demonstrating here how the resurrection changes things. It's not just a continuation of life as it is. How would you like that? All of a sudden, you pass away, time for the resurrection. All right, no more sin. Hey, this is just like I left it before. This is a sham, right? Nothing's changed. No, it's going to be completely different. Our bodies will be completely different. The world in which we live will be remade, the new heavens and the new earth. And so the power of the resurrection, it is life changing, life transforming. It's a, it's a complete 180. It's a complete overhaul. It's going down to the frame and building everything back up. That's what the resurrection is. Now you might read that and you might think, oh, we're not going to marry or be given in marriage. What about my current relationship, my current Spouse, what, what does that mean? Well, that doesn't mean we're not going to remember people or understand our relationship from our previous life with them. One author said this, and I think this is a, a good summary and a good reminder to reset our thinking. Because we can easily slip into sentimentality or into understanding, I, I love this person very dearly. I've loved them for decades. Does this mean I won't have any of that relationship going forward? into eternity? One author says this, this passage bothers some Christians today who fear that their deep and meaningful relationships with their spouses, nurtured over many years, will not continue into eternity. 
But this is to read too much into Jesus' words. Though there is no need for procreation in eternity, and so no marriage in its present form, we can assume that all relationships in God's presence, listen to this, will be profoundly deeper than anything we experience in this life. Let me read that again. We can assume that all relationships in God's presence, because we are going to be in God's presence, will be profoundly deeper than anything we experience in this life. In other words, our relationships with our spouses and families will no doubt be more intimate, not less in eternity, because we are with God in his presence and we are united without sin together. So though it may not be like it is now, we don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but I think this author has a good perspective that because we are with God in his presence, those relationships are going to be even deeper in understanding and in intimacy because we are with one another in the presence of God himself. So Jesus says to the Sadducees, well, your question is false on a couple grounds. One, marriage isn't really a thing in eternity. You're, you're kind of missing the point there. And the resurrection is going to change things wholesale. It's not just going to be a continuation of what it's like right now. And then in verse 26, he not only demonstrates how they don't understand the power of God in the resurrection, but then also how they've misread the scriptures. How the testimonies of the scriptures point to God being a God who will raise the dead, who is a life-giving God. Verse 26, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Why is that phrase important? Because if you remember, the Sadducees only thought the Pentateuch, the first five books, were authoritative. And so Jesus says, okay, I can play by your rules. Let's go to the book of Exodus. Now, there were no chapter divisions or verses yet. So he says, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? So if I would tell you, okay, it's a book of Moses and it's about a bush, what does your mind go to? The burning bush. Hopefully, Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, where God uh, comes to Moses in the form of a burning bush that is not consumed, and he speaks with Moses, and he tells him what he wants him to do. And what does Moses ask God? Who should I say is sending me? Basically, in whose name should I go? If I'm going to go to Pharaoh, I'm a nobody. Who are you? Jesus quotes it and says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. What is clear here in this passage is that Jesus affirms the Exodus or the book of Exodus. Here he's affirming the account of Moses speaking to God and God speaking back to Moses. This is who I am. This is who I am. God speaks to Moses and proclaims that he's a living God. He says, I am. He's not saying, I was, I will be, I might have been. No, I am. He's saying currently, right now, Moses, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. It's a present sense of being. And he's the God of these three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is that important? 
Were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alive when God was speaking to Moses? Not in a earthly human sense. The patriarchs had passed on. Abraham had passed away. Isaac, Jacob had, living down in Egypt. But he says, I am the God of these men. Why is that important? Well, God made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And in his promises to these men, did everything come to fruition? I, I, I'm kind of getting a lot of, yeah, what do you mean by that? <laughs> in an earthly sense, no. Right? Abraham, he was going to be a father of many nations. How, how many kids did he have when he died? Not that many. Really only one legitimate one. Right? And he was going to have a, a nation. And, and the, the nations were going to come to him. But he didn't have that. And that promise was passed down to Isaac and to Jacob. And so God is saying here, I am the God of these men, these individuals, and I made them promises. And because I am their God, verse 27, Jesus says, he is not a God of the dead, but of the living. What Jesus is doing here, it's, it's remarkable. He is saying, God in the Old Testament made these promises to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. And he made these promises, and because he's God, he has to fulfill his promises. He has to keep his word. But in their human earthly lives, these promises did not all come to pass. So what that means is they must come to pass at some point. But if he made the promise to Abraham, but Abraham's not around, big whoop. Because <laughs> Abraham didn't see the result of his promise. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying these men, though they are dead now, they will rise again. They are going to be made alive in the resurrection and they will see the fulfillment and the fruition of all these promises that are made to them. Because if they were dead and there was no resurrection, Jesus didn't keep his promise and there's nothing, or God didn't keep his promises and there's nothing that God can do to fix that. And then he wouldn't be God. God is either a liar and cannot be trusted or God will fulfill his promises in the future as these men will be resurrected and enjoy the promises made to them. And Jesus clearly states he's not a God of the dead, but of the living. Those who believe in God through Jesus Christ are a God of the living because we live forever. We are eternal beings. And so God is a God of the living, not of the dead. Jesus clearly states this, and those who put their trust in him will live. And this idea of God being a God of life is throughout the entire Bible. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection of the life. Jesus, Jesus gives living water. Again and again, Jesus's own testimony points to the fact that this is who he is. And, of course, the very testimony of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection proves this. The scriptures clearly and repeatedly point to a coming resurrection, and it's accomplished through the power of God. Jesus says, all right, Sadducees, 
One, you don't fully understand the power of the resurrection. But two, you deny the resurrection. But let me point to the book of Moses in Exodus that says that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These men are dead in an earthly sense, but God made promises and God will keep his promises. So that means God is going to raise them from the dead in the future. Because if he doesn't, he's a liar or he's not God. Jesus takes the books that they view as authoritative and says, hey, here's the resurrection. You've just missed it. Because of your own preconceived notions and presumptions. I am a God of the living, not a God of the dead. And at the end, he says this very clearly. You are quite wrong. That word quite there is very. It's, it's a, uh, it's, it's this word that I didn't like to the extreme. You are absolutely 100% completely wrong. Jesus here is demonstrating that the message of the resurrection was foolishness to the Sadducees because they had not experienced this life-giving message of the kingdom of God. He's saying, you don't understand the power of God. You don't understand the word of God. And we see this in your life, for they are consumed with themselves and keeping the power that they have. So how does this apply to us today? Well, we read this and we see that we can trust the word of God. Jesus here affirms the scriptures all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus knew the Old Testament and Jesus believed the Old Testament. He affirmed it. And so if, if Jesus trusts it, we can trust it. And Jesus affirms here the resurrection. And as we read the rest of the New Testament, we see how it fleshes it out and how it gives more details of of what it looks like and how it's going to happen. But we can trust the Old Testament. We can trust the Scriptures from God. Secondly, the resurrection is a reality. The resurrection will happen. The resurrection is something that is going to come to pass. We live living one day or two day or a week or a month at a time. And sometimes we can forget the idea of eternity and the hope that brings. And to sit by somebody who has lived a long life, who believes in Jesus Christ, and death is fast approaching. And they know, they are looking forward with hope to the resurrection that this is all going to be, it's all going to be done away with. What a hope that we have. The aches and pains of life. The struggles in relationships and injustice and unrighteousness in the world around us. There will be a day when, when these bodies that break down and get sick and, and diseased and, and don't work, work right, and all that is going to be gone. It's going to be completely transformed through the resurrection. We can trust the word of God and the resurrection is a reality. Jesus affirms that the scriptures point to God being a powerful, life-giving God. And I think that is so remarkable. For in all that can, we can miss maybe sometimes in, in the scriptures or as we communicate to people, this is the God that we love. This is the God that we serve. He's trustworthy. 
He communicates with us through his word and he gives life. You ever been around somebody who gives life? I'm not talking in a literal sense, but in a relational sense. They're encouraging and fun to be around and you always enjoy conversing with them. They, they, they bring life. This is the God that we serve and he brings it in a completely different way. So just as Jesus affirms the scriptures, that Jesus points to his father being a powerful life-giving God, may we see that as well. May we rest in this, that we can trust his word and we can trust his word knowing that the resurrection is a reality and it will come to pass. And it's a hope to be looked forward to. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. Lord, to see here how a false way of thinking leads to a false way of living. The Sadducees lived for themselves and their power and what they could gain and and they disregarded certain aspects of the law and of the writings because they had a, a bad way of thinking, a wrong way of thinking. And how often do we, Lord, have an incomplete understanding or we're, we're too nearsighted in our thinking, which affects how we live? Our desires are misplaced or they are misguided. Lord, help us to affirm the truth of your word, to love it, to read it, to be in it, Lord, to be reminded of the hope that we have in the coming resurrection, the resurrection from the dead, the life everlasting because of Jesus. Lord, that hope is only found in him. Lord, we love you. We pray this in his name. Amen.